On this edition of the Iowa Business Report, no one can outcompete the Iowa manufacturer, the Iowa farmer, the agricultural sector, and likewise energy. And we're we're Iowa's a big energy producer. Iowa's economy is on the rise due to a variety of factors unique to our state. More on the distinctiveness of Iowa's economy coming up. In our profile segment, a company that began with a single invention and has grown to become a third-generation employer of thousands across the world. This is the Iowa Business Report for the first weekend of January 2020. The Iowa Business Report is presented with support from the Iowa Association of Business and Industry. The Iowa Association of Business and Industry has been the voice of Iowa business since 1903. Learn more online at iowaabi.org. Here is Jeff Stein. Hello and welcome to the first program in our new series, focusing on business, government, and the people who drive Iowa's economy. There is optimism as the new year 2020 begins. A new survey suggests economic growth is ahead, somewhat soft and somewhat slow, but growth nonetheless. The Mid-America Business Conditions Index released this past week shows manufacturers are more positive than they were a month ago, due in great part to news of a possible trade deal with China and passage of the United States-Mexico-Canada Agreement. In 2019, Iowa ranked in the lower third of the nine Midwest and Plains states surveyed in terms of overall economic growth. For 2020, the prediction is brighter with Iowa being ranked in the middle of that pack. Dr. Ernie Goss is an economist who teaches at Creighton University in Omaha. He's recognized as the foremost expert on the Midwestern economy and frequently speaks to business and trade groups. I talked with Dr. Goss after one of those presentations in the Cedar Falls-Waterloo area recently and asked him to explain how Iowa's economy is unique. We live in the greatest part of the greatest nation on the face of the earth. Now, what the heck does that mean? High productivity. We're talking about no one can outcompete the Iowa manufacturer, the Iowa farmer, the agricultural sector, and likewise energy. And we're we're Iowa's a big energy producer. Uh, whether that's or whether we're talking about electricity, we're talking about wind energy, or ethanol, all all that. So that's and and that's much like the other states surrounding Iowa. Iowa is, has had uh, and maybe a more of a, an issue in terms of uh, out migration, negative out migration, what we sometimes call brain drain, and that's a that has been plaguing this part of the nation since 1930 because of being the highest productive farmers on the face of the earth you you produce more and more output with fewer and fewer individuals and fewer and fewer workers and fewer and fewer farms so you have this out migration and and your your youth are sometimes graduating from universities and colleges in in Iowa and moving to Chicago moving to New York and that's that's a, an issue that's very relevant Iowa's economy, I mean, it's held up very well, but one of the issues right now it's not holding up well is, is the impact of trade. And, and Iowa depends heavily, more than most states, on trade. When you talk about trade, you're talking about trade barriers, tariffs, retaliation, which we've seen by China, and who, who gets hit first? Farmer. 
an agricultural sector and those that those that are linked to agriculture. And as I sometimes say in my presentations, uh, what happens on the farm does not stay on the farm. When corn stalks are flooded in uh, Council Bluffs, Nebraska suffers. It's right across the border mm-hmm. in different states. So ag is very important. But it's in terms of looking out long term, they need our food. They being everybody on the face of the earth needs our food. That's the farmers from this part of the nation. We're almost a victim of our own success with regard to the efficiencies on the mm-hmm. farm because you no longer have as many jobs, et cetera. And I suppose there's the wanderlust of the young who may want to go somewhere right. and hopefully come back. The challenge, is it not, to find something to do when you do come back? Is this unique to Iowa as opposed to some of the other states that you folks study? I had a student in my class, and, and it's very true for students, and, and he said, I can't wait. He's from Chicago. He couldn't wait to get out of Omaha. And I'm like, well, what's wrong with Omaha? He says, everybody here is so friendly. I'm like, well, is that a problem? Well, it is a problem for young folks. In other words, they want the busy. They want the, the big city. They want New York. They want Chicago. And then they get older, and they say, well, I can't raise a family in, in San Francisco. i got to move to Des Moines. i got to move to Dubuque. I've got to move to Council Bluffs, Omaha, wherever. So it's a lot to do with what we're now fixated on, millennials. Everybody wants to belly up to the millennials and give them what they want. Well, they're, they're going to be – I was a millennial at one time many, many years ago. We didn't call it that. We call them baby boomers. Mm-hmm. I'm still a baby boomer. <laughs> we were driving the economy then. Uh, they're driving the economy now. But it is a serious issue, and they want streetcars, for example, and and we're like, well, that's not cost-effective. They want it anyway. So you're having some cities that are uh, spending more than they should, and that's true about governments across the nation. Mm-hmm. And you're talking about in Iowa you face some serious challenges in terms of education spending, education cost, and how do you do it more effectively. You lose Young people that graduate from high school in Mount Air, for example. Well, it's better that they go to Des Moines than they go to Chicago for the state of Iowa. So some of that, I mean, there's strong resentment, I find, in some cases about the the, uh, rural communities losing their young to the metros. But it's better that it's a metro that's in your state than a metro more distant. For example, New York, uh, Chicago, San Francisco. So you, there's a lot Iowa has to offer. How did you determine the states that you use mm-hmm. in your respective surveys? Well, all the states that we survey are, are heavily dependent on agriculture and energy. And that's a banker survey. These are bank CEOs in rural areas of 10 states, including Iowa. So that's one group. And so they're all dependent on agriculture. You move to Colorado, which the areas we survey in Colorado are dependent on agriculture and energy. Now, North Dakota, we see a lot of dependence on energy. That's the one group. And then the other survey we do is manufacturers. And those are more in the urban areas. And manufacturing, again, is is more important to Iowa than other states. So we're looking at states that depend heavily on those two sectors, and we're getting them in one survey and then the other survey. And right now, unfortunately, unfortunately, people say, are we in a recession? Are we going into one? (laughs) Manufacturing and agriculture are in a recession right now. If you look at a real GDP growth in those, uh, those two sectors, it's probably now moving into negative range. Growth now. I'm talking, so we're seeing that. But the overall economy is not in a recession. So and energy as well. I mean, we're talking about oil, 
now at 50 to $60 a barrel. Previously in 2008, as late as that, it was $128 a barrel. So ethanol is important. I mean, uh, I was the number one producer of ethanol in the nation. And uh, Nebraska and Minnesota, likewise. So these are the commonality is is dependence on agriculture and trade, dependence on uh, manufacturing and trade as well. And you mentioned Iowa being so reliant on manufacturing. Is that because it serves as a necessary counterweight to agriculture? In other words, if agriculture is down, then manufacturing can level things out and potentially vice versa? Right. We're talking about, for example, food processing. That's manufacturing. That's very important to this part of the country. Then you're talking about agricultural equipment manufacturers, uh, John Deere, for example. Then you've got the uh, aluminum manufacturers and steel manufacturers, fabricated metal, that provide input to the uh, uh, John Deere's. So it all links in, and that's the advantage that we have this part of the country has of this what's sometimes called value-added agriculture and we do wonderfully in there now when you do great it's going great when you're not doing well which is right now it's not not great it's out there and, and the rural areas right now are hurting much more than the urban areas creighton university economist dr ernie goss you can read details of the current Mid-America Business Conditions Index Survey or his Rural Main Street Index Report released in the middle of each month by going online, gossandassociates.com. Still to come, an update on USMCA, and we'll profile a family-owned company that has a global presence from its Iowa home. You're listening to the Iowa Business Report. The Iowa Business Report is a copyrighted production of Totally Iowa Media, which is solely responsible for its content. For more, click on the radio programs button at totallyiowa.com. The Trump administration spearheaded a revision of the North American Free Trade Agreement as a key priority in year one. But despite getting our neighboring governments of Canada and Mexico to sign on to a new agreement, the deal was stalled in the U.S. House until just last month. It finally passed on a bipartisan vote and now heads to the Senate, where Iowa U.S. Senator Charles Grassley says his finance committee will begin marking up the bill right away when Congress reconvenes next week. The agreement needs to be ratified not only to provide certainty, but to improve upon the outdated NAFTA, as Iowa Secretary of Agriculture and Land Stewardship Mike Nag told me recently. The fact that Congress hasn't acted on this trade pact after it was negotiated a year ago is just, it's becoming a, a problem. And, uh, you know, I think it's time. Every day that the U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer is negotiating with Congress is a day that he can't be out negotiating a new free trade agreement or a new agreement with a, another market, another country. And I, I think we need to remember that we have capacity issues with the trade reps office and that they need to be working on new deals, not trying to get something passed that was negotiated a year ago. Aaron Putsey is communications director of the Iowa Soybean Association, and he was just as forceful in his advocacy. I think there's, there's true frustration uh, in the countryside. They can understand the need and the necessity, for example, to look at some of these trade agreements. And, and you'll find broad support out there, I believe, among farmers that, you know what, we do need to look at these trade agreements, whether it's with China, whether it's with other countries, and, and make sure that they are working for the United States today. 
some of these trade agreements are 20, 30 years old and, and you know, you do need to look at them. What they're going to do is they may argue with the approach and that's legitimate as well. These are difficult times and I don't think you can make light of the, the challenges right now facing farmers as they bring in this year's crop and start looking ahead to 2020. USMCA, as passed by Congress, will be slightly different than the version agreed to more than a year ago, so any substantive changes will also have to be approved by lawmaking bodies in Canada and Mexico. So final implementation is still a long ways off. Up next, learn about the company founded by a man with a vision for invention. You're listening to the Iowa Business Report. The Iowa Business Report is presented with support from the Iowa Association of Business and Industry, helping develop the next generation of business leaders through Leadership Iowa, Business Horizons, and Leadership Iowa University. To learn more, go to iowaabi.org. In this week's profile segment, the story of a man whose efforts to create efficiencies have led to major changes across multiple industries. They say necessity is the mother of invention. If that's true, it's a saying Gary Vermeer certainly took to heart. My dad had already been making some innovations on the family farm in order to make his life easier as a farmer. And one of those was a a wagon hoist, which would lift up the wagon so it was easier to get the corn out during corn harvesting season. And he had friends that said, hey, could you make one of those for me? And he initially actually had a welding shop in Pella uh, make some units for him. But I think he realized that, uh, okay, if I want to have more of the quality and exactly the production that I expect as a, uh, as a consumer, maybe I had to start my own manufacturing company. So that's what he did in 1948. That's Mary Vermeer Andringa now chair of the board of the Vermeer Corporation, then as now based in Pella, but with locations on five continents employing nearly 3,000 people. We went from him having one person working for him in a cement block building, which he built himself, to today we have over 220 different products. We um, serve the world. And we um, have multiple plants, not only in Pella, but also in some other states and in China and in uh, the Netherlands, and regional offices to support our dealer network. So we've, we've grown from a one person, one idea, one product, to multiple products and uh, serving customers around the world. You've obviously lived this your whole life. What sort of a person was he that would lead him to have that spark and that initiative and take that leap at a time when others would have just sat back and been satisfied with what they had? Well, my dad was definitely very entrepreneurial and also very inventive. So already in 1939, he had put a cab on his John Deere tractor because it would often be pretty cold when they were out planting in April. And um, I asked him once, I said, Dad, did anybody else have a cab on your tr- on their tractors? And he said, no, nobody had cabs on tractors in 1939. And so he was always thinking about ways to make work easier on the farm. And really, a lot of our first... Um, 
um, products were related to how to make work easier on the farm. For instance, a, a tiling machine, a PTO tiling machine, to put in tile to take water off the, the wet spots, which he had done that work with his dad using horses and thought, boy, there ought to be a mechanical way to do that. So he made a PTO trencher. That led to all of our underground products. He had ideas for making things better. And then when people asked him, hey, would you make one for me? I think then he started realizing, hey, there's an opportunity here. Mary Vermeer Andringa is part of the second generation to own and operate the company, now handing off to a third generation. But that doesn't mean family members were entitled to work there. You had to have a desire and you had to have skills. You needed to work somewhere else first. You needed to be promoted and preferably have attained a master's degree before you would come back if you thought you had expectations to be involved in management. And actually my brother Bob and I had both worked in different jobs before coming into the business. We saw value in that and working with family business consultants, they also encouraged that sort of a process. We decided we were going to set some goals. And as we started working on goals, we realized that some of the goals really were more like boundaries. They really weren't goals. So, for instance, and they, and they dealt with principles, which had been part of our, our dad's legacy. Uh, one was to really value people highly and to promote from within whenever you can. I mean, there, were, there was no limit ever in this company. If someone worked hard and had desire and was willing to try things, they could go to whatever position almost they wanted to. Another one was um, no long-term debt. Um, another one was that you stand behind your product and you're, you're always striving for quality, high quality. And if you miss the mark, you go take care of that and send out care teams. And, and so as we worked on these goals, we realized some of these aren't really goals. This is like who we are. You may recall that in 2018, a tornado struck the Pella plant just as folks had gathered to mark the 70th anniversary of the company. Lessons learned from the past helped guide the company through the more recent recovery. We've experienced, as many other companies have, two pretty major downturns in the last two decades. The 2001-3 was the dot-com downturn. For us, that was a big deal because we were supplying a lot of equipment to fiber optic installation. And so when that stopped, wow, did that stop. So that was a big downturn. Another downturn was obviously 2009, which was the financial crisis, which was a worldwide thing. And then for us, July 19, 2018, when we were hit by an EF3 tornado. And in all of those cases, I would have to say that was really what was really important for us is that we realized that actually our values were a little bit tested then. And I think that in both downturns, we made sure that people were very valued in each of those. So unfortunately, we had to have some reductions in force in the 2001 to 3, but we tried to help people um, as compassionately as we could find other jobs, be able to write resumes. We brought in other employers who were hiring at that time. In the 2009, we made a decision with our board and with our shareholders that we would not have any reduction in force, even though we went down 40%. So we made adjustments in hours. We were able to use a shared work program with the state of Iowa. 
in, in one year, things came back and we had really worked at reducing inventory and working on some key engineering projects. We, we had everybody back to 40 hours and we had our skills here. Whereas a lot of our vendors had laid off people, had reductions in force, and really had lo we lost some continuity with some of our vendors. So our values took precedent in the decisions we made. In the tornado, there was no doubt the most important thing was finding where all of our people were, making sure they were safe, getting them back to work as quickly as possible. That's the P of people. And secondly, figuring out how to get product rolling that had been affected as quickly as possible. And we were had everyone back to work in 30 days and virtually all product lines being built somewhere in 45 days. And I think it, um, it showed that our values are not just words, they, they mean something and it's how we live. Mary Vermeer Andringa explained to me in detail how the family created their own code to help guide governance of the business beyond that first generation. It's a fascinating exercise and you can hear more about it and hear our whole conversation by going to totallyiowa.com and clicking on the radio programs link. And that brings us to the close of this first edition of the Iowa Business Report. Next week, the Iowa General Assembly will soon gavel into session and will discuss what issues may come before it that affect employees and businesses alike. And we'll meet a Californian who found rural Iowa to be just the place for his company to expand and reach its fullest potential. That's next week at this same time. In the meantime, you can listen to all or part of today's program by going to totallyiowa.com and clicking on the radio programs link. We'll also post podcasts of the full interviews with Ernie Goss and Mary Vermeer Andriga. You'll find those as IBR extras. We welcome your comments. Send them by email to radio at totallyiowa.com. I'm Jeff Stein. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you have a prosperous week. Business Report is presented with support from the Iowa Association of Business and Industry, sponsors of the Taking Care of Business Conference in Cedar Rapids in June. Follow ABI on Twitter at IowaABI and online at iowaabi.org.